This is the Amblecote Community Church Teaching Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Faulkner, part of the Amblecote Community Church family. I have the great honour of ending our whole church teaching on the Apostles' Creed with this final podcast, looking at the closing words of this great declaration, which are these. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. What we're going to look at in this podcast is why the resurrection of the body matters, what Christian belief about the future is and is not, what we know and what we don't know about the resurrection, and then conclude with some reflections on what it is to believe in the life everlasting. So first of all, then, why does this matter? Like the rest of the Apostles' Creed, these two short lines somehow managed to capture in just a few words two things of monumental importance and significance. They're two of just three lines in the whole of the Creed that speak of things still to come. And what they speak of shows us that Christian hope regarding the future really matters. It is completely understandable when Christians say that we mustn't be so heavenly and future-minded that we are no earthly and present use. It's completely understandable that one of the world's leading Christian charities, Christian Aid, has as its slogan, or at least it used to, we believe in life before death. So should every Christian It has sometimes looked like Christians don't really engage with or even care about life in the here and now. Whether that might show itself in a careless view of the environment, in not having anything to say on the social and economic issues of the day, or on a smaller scale, the fact that the average Christian still subconsciously wonders what on earth their daily work on a Monday has to do with what happened when they gather with the rest of the church on Sunday. All Christians believe in life before death, or at least they should, because that is what Jesus came to bring. And yet what Christians believe about the future is crucial for the present and has the potential to speak powerfully about the present, even to those who don't yet believe. Why do I say that? Well, for at least four reasons. What Christians believe about the future future is crucial, first of all, to our need for hope. Hope for change that can't be undone for a world as it should be. Secondly, what Christians believe about the future is crucial to our sense of justice, given that we have to face the reality that there are many people who have not received and will not receive justice in this present age. Thirdly, it's crucial to our longing for true comfort, for the promise that suffering will end and joy and wholehearted gladness will triumph. And fourthly, it's crucial to our need for significance, the sense that most people have, I would dare to suggest all people have, of wanting their lives to mean something and be of value 
beyond the narrow confines of our 70-year existence. All of those things and more are wrapped up in these words, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. What we believe about the future has a huge effect on how we live in the here and now. That is true of everyone, probably, but it is especially true for Christians, because in a remarkable part of the Bible, Paul, the great early Christian leader, wrote in such a way as to stake the whole of the Christian faith on the hope of resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a part of his letter to an early church, and a passage that I'll refer to several times in this podcast, he wrote these words, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's 1 Corinthians 15 verses 13 to 20. So Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the body, Jesus was not raised either. You remember we looked at the resurrection of Jesus earlier in this series. And if that is the case, Paul says, Christianity is pathetically mistaken. But, he says, Jesus was raised. And so those who belong to him will be raised as well. That is the heart of authentic Christian belief about the future. And yet that belief is so often misunderstood, not just by those outside the church looking in, but also by those inside the church itself. If you belong to Jesus, what do you think the future holds for you beyond your 70 or 80 or 90 years? As I pause for just a few seconds, Imagine that future in your mind's eye. We need to consider belief which is Christian and belief which is not. I wonder what you thought of in those few seconds. What many of us imagine as we think of the future beyond this present age is some kind of ethereal existence where we float around on the clouds. It's a belief that can be reinforced by some of the traditional hymns we sing. Then like stars, his children crowned, all in white, shall wait around. Now that is a line that could be interpreted consistently with authentic Christian teaching, which the church has believed through the ages. But for most of us, lines like that confirm the picture we have, that the future is all about escaping, escaping from this material world to live 
floating among the stars, where at long last we can be rid of the limitations of our bodies. Well, that may be a common image, but it has nothing to do with what Christians believe. As Adrian pointed out in the third podcast in this series, it is actually a Gnostic belief. Gnosticism is simply a broad term for various beliefs still around in various different guises even today. Various different beliefs that the body and everything about the material world are evil and need to be avoided and escaped. Those who authored the Apostles' Creed knew that only too well. This was not faithful to the teachings of Jesus or to the teachings of the scriptures he was so careful to honour. And so yet again, we find confirmed in the creed that Christian faith strongly affirms the material world, including our bodies. Think for a moment about the key themes of the Bible. In the very act of creation, at the start of the story, we read of the creation of a material world by an immaterial God. As God calls a people to be set apart for himself, we see him commanding that people to multiply, to go into all of the world and be a blessing to all of its peoples. In the coming of Jesus, which theologians call the incarnation, we see God honouring the human body by being born into our material world and sharing our material life. In the suffering, dying, burial, bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus, all of these events which so define the Christian faith, we see physical and bodily events. Even in the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see God's commitment to dwell in the ordinary material lives of ordinary material people. The point I'm trying to make is simply this, that Christians strongly affirm that we and our world are more than just material, but that the material stuff of life, our bodies included, it's all of incredible significance. So it is for the future too, because Christian hope is not just spiritual, as if that could in any sense be disembodied. Christian hope for the future is bodily hope for a material future. And that is what this line of the creed gloriously declares, that those who belong to Christ can declare, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Our glorious future as Christians is a bodily future in a renewed physical world. But at this point, it's right to humble ourselves and say that there is much that we don't know. What do we know and what do we not know? As Christians with a high view of the Bible, we trust that in the Bible, which supremely centres on and points to the person of Jesus, God has revealed all that we truly need for life and godliness. And so if there are things that he has not revealed, then in his fatherly goodness, he has determined that right now it's not necessary for us to know it. The first thing the Bible does not say is how we will be resurrected. What the process is, what the resurrection body will look like 
what will be the nature of the renewed material creation we're promised, and so on. We're just not told. It may be that you're so familiar with the accounts that you've never seen this, but have you noticed that we're not told how Jesus rose from the dead either? That's something that Ben Myers helpfully points out in his book on the creed that we've been recommending to accompany this series. We can see that Jesus was recognisable to his disciples, that there was continuity with his pre-resurrected body because he ate and spoke and walked and could be touched and so on. And yet there was discontinuity as well. For example, he seems to have appeared to his disciples and then leave their gatherings in a way that was different to before. So it is with the resurrection of our bodies. We don't quite know the answers to all of the questions that might occur to us. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, where after the verses we read earlier, Paul goes on to say this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. That's from verse 35 to 37. Drop down to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And then down to verse 51, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body. Verse 53 must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. It seems that Paul is saying is that your body now is like a seed. In death, it is sown, literally in the ground in burial. The life to which it is raised is like a tree. The seed and the tree are unspeakably different, and yet they have the same core identity. So there is discontinuity. The resurrection body will be different, but there is also continuity. You will still be you. In his chapter on this part of the creed, Ben Myers quotes an early church theologian called Origen. Like all theologians of any age, we should read Origen's writings carefully, measured against scripture. But it's a beautiful point to consider that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to the resurrection of the body rather than bodies. And perhaps in some way this reflects that Paul is speaking not only about the individual's resurrection, but about the resurrection of the church, the body of Christ in the world. If that's the case, and you need to weigh up for yourself whether you think it is by considering 1 Corinthians 15 yourself carefully. It reminds us that our future is social and corporate and that to its end and beyond the Christian life is never just about me. So those are some of the things we do know about the how, 
but there is a lot that we don't know about the how, how we will be resurrected. Another question the Bible doesn't answer is when? When will the great resurrection happen? Christians can and do hold a variety of views on what, if any, events must take place before the resurrection. And we should respect each other's views and differences in that regard. But what all the views hold in common, at least in the mainstream Christian teaching through the ages, is what is captured in the creed. They all proclaim the resurrection of the body. It's at this point that we get close to the limit of what we can say with any confidence. But what's important to say is that whatever the detail of the Christian's future and whenever that future arrives, what we do know is that it will be glorious. In Revelation chapter 21, we read these words, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This chapter in Revelation goes on to speak of judgment, something we covered in an earlier podcast in this series. But what is celebrated in this line of the creed and indeed in these verses is the glorious hope that the promise of resurrection brings. For the creed goes on to say that Christians believe not only in the resurrection of the body, but also in the life everlasting. That's the final clause of the creed. I believe in the life everlasting. And I just want to share a few thoughts about that. The promise of life everlasting is, of course, caught up with the words we read in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes that the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Note again, even as I read that, the continuity between life now and life everlasting, implied by the phrase that our mortal bodies must put on immortality. But what is the life everlasting or eternal life? Ben Myers is right to point out in his chapter on this phrase from the Creed, that when the New Testament speaks of uh, eternal life or everlasting life. Its primary focus is not on life that never ends, or certainly that isn't its sole focus. As Ben Myers says, some experiences of life are so awful that to live them unendingly would be unbearable. Eternal life is the kind of life Jesus speaks about, for example, in John's Gospel. In John 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And in John 17, he prays this, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, 
that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is speaking of a particular quality of life, life that is life to its fullness because it is lived by reference to him and the father who sent him. This is life that becomes so consumed by and taken up with God that it is life of a quality that cannot be matched and cannot be spoiled. Again, we come to the limits of what we can know, or at least I do. But we do know that Jesus is life, and we know that God, his Father, is good and just and almighty. So if we will make it our own, that confession is enough to secure our future in him eternally, whatever that future may look like. To conclude this podcast and indeed this series, let's go back to where we started this podcast. I spoke of how this declaration about the future meets our deepest needs in the present. I hope you've seen that. First of all, it meets our need for hope and our need for justice. You see, whatever change for good we're involved in, whatever justice we see in this present age, we have to acknowledge the reality that there is always a possibility that it will be undone, that it may not last. And even if it does last, it will always be partial. There is a never ending need for more justice and more that is good in our world. This part of the creed gives us hope for a future where what is right and what is just is complete and can never be undone. And I hope you agree that we need that kind of hope as we work and live for God and his good purposes in the present, wherever we may find ourselves. Secondly, this declaration about the future meets our need for comfort and significance. For many people in our world, here and abroad, life is defined by pain. For some people, sadly, that is true of all of their lives. For most of us, it is a mercy that it's true only of parts of our lives. Well, whichever it is, this part of the creed breathes the promise that suffering is not the final word. But it goes even beyond that. Even for those whose suffering is minimal or routine, the very shortness of life and the advancing of years can seem to mock the idea that our lives have any true value at all. Well, this part of the creed brings that mockery to its knees and declares that the Christian's hope is a life beyond the sting of death, life to the full, life bound up with him who is the fullness of life itself. As I get older and inevitably closer to death, nothing could be more wonderful than that. I find 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 58 to be one of the most precious verses in all of scripture. 
Paul, having declared the importance and truth of the future described in the Apostles' Creed, concludes the chapter by saying this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. The promise of the future grounds us in the present and sends us out to work for the Lord gladly and wholeheartedly. Why? Because as this verse says, the smallest action done in his name, the quietest word spoken in his name, the weakest prayer offered in his name, none of that will ever be in vain. That is a glorious hope. And so we can say to these lines of the creed and all the lines that go before it that we've considered throughout this series, we can say with billions of Christians through the ages and across the world, the final word of the creed, Amen. So be it. Let it be so. Perhaps for some of us, we speak the Amen with some uncertainty and timidity at times. But it is not my faith or yours that is the source of our confidence in what the creed has spoken. It is who the creed speaks of. Indeed, he who alone can speak the creed without fear of contradiction. He is the ground of our faith and the anchor for our souls. So we say with him and with each other to the words of this great Apostles' Creed, we say, Amen. May it be so. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website 